no doubt almost all of you have seen the Hayek and Keynes rap videos, uh, Fear the Boom and Bust, uh, Battle of the Century. I also like to think about my book as a very handy reference companion to those videos. Uh, and the reason I suggest that is because those videos have like three million hits. <laughs> so you can do the math. Um, more seriously, this project began when uh, I was teaching at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. I've been at uh, George Mason just three years now. And two weeks before the semester uh, started, I was drafted to teach the department's course on the history of economic thought. And since I had so little time to prepare, you know, a rigorous course uh, from Aristotle to the present, I had the desperate idea that I could sort of cobble together a course by at each class meeting showing an excerpt like seven to ten minutes from the PBS documentary The Commanding Heights, the first uh, two hours of which talk about the intellectual debates of the 20th century, particularly as personified by Hayek and Keynes. Uh, and showing the video segments at the start of each class would not only kill some time, uh, it would also make Keynes and Hayek real to the students because after all now they're not just guys in books, they're on TV. Uh, it actually, I think, worked that way. Um, and it would have the benefit of teaching the students some economic history, sort of putting the debate in the framework of what the big issues at the time were. And teaching economic history was not only a virtue in its own right, but it would allow me to pad my lectures with material that were in my course on economic history that I'd already taught before. Uh, and then I would spend the rest of the class going more deeply into what the commanding heights had glossed over in just a few minutes. Um, and I don't know about the students, but to me it actually made the course interesting to teach. And I thought uh, I, I put a lot of work into it, actually, as it turned out, by the end of the semester. And then it turned out to take even a lot more work to turn the lecture notes uh, into a book. Uh, but in places you can still see sort of the skeleton of the commanding heights kind of lurking in the background. So in many respects this is a book in the history of economic thought, but I like to think it's a little more than that or it's an atypical uh, history of thought because it only covers the good parts. That is, it, it only covers the economic theory and the empirical work that are useful uh, for economic policy, not the esoteric, purely blackboard parts. Um, because it focuses on the policy uh, issues, it's organized issue by issue. So each chapter deals with a particular area of uh, a particular policy dispute um, and frames that debate with a historical event that brought these uh, contrasting ideas to the forefront. So it's not one of these encyclopedic histories of economic thought that, as I said, start in, uh, with the Aristotle or the scholastics and move in chronological order. Uh, you might call the, but then as necessary within each chapter uh, to understand what people were talking about in the last hundred years, I go back to what earlier economists said uh, as far back as Adam Smith. And so it's somewhat non-chronological within each chapter. Uh, and to defend this, in the introduction to the book, I quote uh, Quentin Tarantino, uh, who told an interviewer that when I made, uh, quoting, when I made Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction non-linear, I was not just doing it to show what a clever boy I was. Those stories were better served dramatically to be done the way I did them. Uh, and I think actually, in, in some ways, uh, the most vivid way to tell the story of an intellectual bait will often involve these kinds of flashbacks. So, don't think of the book's narrative as chronologically scrambled. Think of it as Tarantino-esque, uh, only with more polite language and less bloodshed. Uh, each chapter of the book begins with a, a little vignette, which uh, is related to the events that I'm describing or the personalities uh, in the chapter. And I want to relate some of those to you because I think it's the best hook I've got for making you want to buy the book, if you haven't bought it already. Uh, and so I've got seven and a half minutes. That works out to 30 seconds per chapter. So this will be like going to iTunes to sample a CD, right? You get 30 seconds of each track. Uh, the first chapter is entitled The Turn from Laissez-Faire, 
and it tries to set the stage by discussing uh, the views, the contrasting views of economists on the eve of the First World War, and in particular, the declining uh, adherence to the doctrine of laissez-faire. So to introduce the two central characters, we visit uh, Cambridge, uh, University of Cambridge in the fall of 1905, where a clever mathematics student named John Maynard Keynes is taking his first and only uh, course in economics from Alfred Marshall. And uh, Keynes writes to a friend of his, I think I'm rather good at it. It's so easy and fascinating to master the principles of these things. And then a week later he writes, Marshall is continually pestering me to turn professional economist. Uh, then we dramatically switch to the uh, banks of the Piave River in northern Italy during the First World War. Uh, and there's a young lieutenant named Friedrich Hayek who has a chance to open his first economics texts during a lull in the combat. Uh, Hayek later says he's surprised that these books didn't give him a permanent distaste for economics. They were so badly written and so Germanic. Uh, but when he returned to the University of Vienna after the war, Hayek discovered the work of Karl Menger, which got him hooked on economics. Uh, in chapter two, uh, chapter two is about the Bolshevik Revolution and the socialist calculation debate. It begins with a letter written by Lenin to the Bolsheviks, uh, or the Bavarian socialists who had just seized power in Munich and declared a Bavarian Soviet Republic. And Lenin gives them advice about how to consolidate power, but he doesn't offer them any advice about how to run the economy once the factories and the farms and the banks have all been seized. And, and this is Lenin's problem. Uh, he wanted to institute a Marxist economy, but Marx hadn't left any blueprint, only sort of visionary statements about uh, abolishing private property and putting the direction of production into the hands of the collective, but not really any guidelines for what the collective is supposed to do. So segue to the famous debate over socialist economic calculation. Uh, chapter three is the Roaring Twenties in Austrian Business Cycle Theory. It begins with the story of Irving Fisher and the stock market crash. Maybe you know this story. Uh, Fisher invented something kind of like the Rolodex, sold it, took what he got, and parlayed it into a fairly big fortune on the stock market, uh, worth about $10 million reportedly, which is about $130-some million today. He became known as a stock market prognosticator. And in, on October 15, 1929, he's at a, a dinner meeting as a speaker in New York City, and as reported in the New York Times, he tells the audience that stock prices had reached, quote, what looks like a permanently high plateau. Uh, two weeks later, of course, the market crashed. Fisher was wiped out because he had borrowed, he was putting his money where his mouth was. He had borrowed heavily to buy stocks on margin. Uh, he, had to, he was so wiped out, he had to sell his house and move in with his sister-in-law. He had no other place to live. Economists around the world, of course, are puzzled by the crash and try to explain it. So segue, uh, in, for the purposes of this chapter, to the Mises-Hayek theory. And later, I'll talk about the Keynesian theory and the monetarist theory of the Great Depression. Uh, chapter four, the New Deal and institutionalist economics, begins just with a slight bit of uh, bias, I suppose. Uh, with Rexford Tugwell sitting in a marble-clad lobby in Rome, Italy in October 34. Tugwell's a member of the Brain Trust, an advisor to FDR, and he's in Rome to talk to Mussolini, uh, who he admires very much, uh, or admired his economic policies anyway. Uh, in his diary, Tugwell had written that Mussolini's regime was doing many of the things that seemed to me necessary and was the cleanest, neatest, most efficiently operating piece of social machinery I've ever seen. It makes me envious. <laughs> okay, a little bit unfair, but um, segue to uh, the ideas that Tugwell got from institutionalist economics and from others, other writers, and how those ideas were inputs into the policies of the New Deal. Uh, chapter five is the Great Depression and Keynes's general theory. So. Right, 1932, the Depression had barely begun, but by the time of Keynes's general theory in 36, it was very deep. Uh, well, it was, had started to recover, actually, but there was a relapse, of course, in 37, 38. Uh, the chapter begins with Keynes writing a letter to a correspondent who, as it turns out, is George Bernard Shaw, the famous playwright, 
Shaw was more famous as a playwright today, but at the time, he was just as well known as an amateur economist and member of the Fabian Society, and had been the author of many, many pamphlets and book chapters uh, advocating various uh, schemes for socializing uh, the economy. So Keynes writes to Shaw, uh, this is in 1935, while he's writing the general theory, to understand my state of mind, you have to know that I believe myself to be writing a book on economic theory which will largely revolutionize, not I suppose at once, but in the course of the next 10 years, the way the world thinks about economic problems. A bold statement, but of course it turns out to be true. And of course Keynes's influence is confirmed, famously confirmed when Richard Nixon tells an interviewer in 1971, I am now a Keynesian in economics. Uh, chapter six is World War, the Second World War and Hayek's Road to Serfdom, and this is one of my favorite stories. It begins in the spring of 1933 when two German SS agents uh, come knocking at the door of the uh, classical liberal German economist Wilhelm Repke. Uh, you all know who the SS are. Uh, Repke later recalled that these particular agents were, quote, of thorough bruiser type. At least that's how his memoir was translated. Uh, Repke had been giving speeches denouncing the Nazi party. Uh, he had been declared an enemy of the people for that and fired from his teaching post at Marburg University. And in general, the Nazis had tried to replace all the anti-Nazis uh, in the universities. But their, their main strategy was to go to the professors who'd been fired and say, you can have your job back if you'll keep quiet. And Repke refused to do that. And when the SS agents explained to him that he ought to be on their side, uh, he rebuked them with what he called scorn and indignation. But as soon as he slammed the door on them as they left, he realized he needed to leave the country. <laughs> Immediately. And he spent the rest of the war in Istanbul. Uh, chapter 7, Post-War British Socialism and the Fabian Society, uh, begins with Clement Attlee leading the Labor Party into victory in 1945. Uh, and the political scientist Harold Lasky, who was an important socialist theorist, uh, actually had an office just down the hall from Hayek's, uh, a, a series of newspaper stories by a paper that was hostile to the Labor Party reported favorable statements Lasky was making about the Soviet Union uh, and even about Stalin's government. And Attlee wasn't pleased by this, and he sent Lasky a private message that read, a period of silence on your part would be welcome. Uh, after winning the election, Lasky had a press conference at which he insisted to the reporters that he would be making policy, not Professor Lasky. And the New York Times responded to this by running a headline, a story with the headline, quote, Britain not ruled by intellectuals. <laughs> uh, chapter eight is sort of the counterpart to the uh, Fabian Society, so segue to a discussion of the Fabian Society, what their ideas were, where they got them, and how they uh, went into the Labor Party. Uh, chapter 8 is a, a kind of a counterpart. It's the Mont Pelerin Society and the Rebirth of Smithian Economics. In an earlier draft, the title was The Rebirth of Spontaneous Order Economics, but I was persuaded by Dan Klein to change it to Smithian. Well, by Dan and a friend of his named Joy. Uh, that's an inside Mason joke. Uh, this chapter begins in a small Swiss village uh, above the northern shore of Lake Geneva in April 47, where another German economist, Walter Eucken, uh, was peeling and eating an orange and really, really enjoying it. And George Stigler notes this in his uh, recollection of the event. And why was he really, really enjoying the orange so much? Well, he'd spent the war in Germany. There were no oranges, at least if you weren't in the party elite. And Eucken was, in fact, an anti-Nazi. Uh, he had remained in Germany for the duration of the war. He was almost arrested because he was a friend of Karl Gerdler, who was involved in the Valkyrie plot. I don't know if you saw the Tom Cruise movie. Uh, throughout the book, I have footnotes recommending movies. Uh, <laughs> and then segue to the connection between running from Adam Smith to uh, F.A. Hayek by way of Karl Menger. Uh, and the contrast between the Mont Pelerin Society and the Fabian Society. Uh, chapters 9 and 10 are kind of a pair. 9 is on the post-war German wonder economy and ordo-liberalism, ordo-liberalism being the ideology behind uh, the market-friendly policies. Uh, 
Uh, that chapter begins, uh, sorry, it's paired with chapter 10, which is about the very different policies adopted in India. Chapter 9 begins with a telephone ringing in the office of Ludwig Erhard, who was the uh, director of the economic administration of the UK-US occupied by zone, uh, a classical liberal economist who just by happenstance got this job. Uh, at the other end of the line was the American military commander of the region, General Lucius Clay. Lucius Clay's office had gotten word that in the speech Erhard was about to give, introducing the uh, new Deutschmark to replace the old Reichsmark, that he was going to go beyond that and announce decontrol of many prices and the end of rationing for those goods, which had not been officially cleared uh, by the Allied authorities. So Erhard comes on the line and General Clay says to him, Professor Erhard, my advisors tell me that you are making a big mistake. And Erhard replies, eh, so my advisors also tell me. <laughs> At least that's the way Erhard later told the story. I'm not sure it's completely accurate. But uh, the decontrol went ahead and Germany's economy boomed. Uh, things went very differently in uh, India. Chapter 10 is Indian planning and development economics, uh, but it's lately been known unofficially as Tyler Cowen's favorite chapter. Uh, it begins with Peter Bauer, the uh, Hungarian turned English economist, uh, development economist, visiting India for the first time in 1958. Uh, and he's looking for an Indian economist named B.R. Shinoy. He's looking for Shinoy because in 1955, when the Indian government introduces the second five-year plan, they appoint a committee of economists, a panel of 21 economists, to review the plan and offer their endorsement or suggestions. And 20 of the economists signed a statement endorsing the plan Shinoy was the only dissenter, and he issued a dissenting note criticizing the plan, uh, saying that uh, market forces would do a better job allocating resources. And this note of dissent was uh, a real annoyance to the members of the Indian Planning Commission, to the Prime Minister Nehru, to Nehru's uh, advisor who had drafted the plan, whose name was Mahalanobis, and to the international aid officials who were all behind this effort. Uh, but Bauer, being a critic of the plan himself, was eager to meet Shinoy. So he went to the uh, British High Commission and asked them whether uh, they were in any sort of contact with Shinoy. And the official he spoke to uh, replied that, uh, we're too busy to have time for acknowledged madmen. <laughs> That's how uh, unwelcome Shinoy was in official circles. Chapter 11 is Bretton Woods and International Monetary Thought. It begins precisely at 3 p.m on the 6th of July, 1944, when Harry Dexter White's daily press conference has a guest star, which is John Maynard Keynes. White was the head of the US delegation. Keynes was the head of the British delegation. Um, and the reporters were very eager to hear Keynes because he was still something of a economic policy rock star, you might say, uh, world-renowned, and still intellectually vigorous, although kind of worn out. In fact, a few days later, he had a heart attack. Uh, Keynes, of course, was not a friend of the gold standard, and he had written in 1924 that the gold standard is already a barbarous relic. Uh, at the Bretton Woods press conference, Keynes likened the gold standard to a dictator. Uh, he said the gold standard should not continue to exercise what he called tyrannical powers over the world. Uh, instead, the work of the conference was to limit gold to the, road of, to the role of, quote, a monarch subject to constitutional limitations. And this way of putting it was kind of odd to those economists on the other side who viewed the gold standard itself as a useful constitutional constraint uh, on government monetary and fiscal policies. So segue to the to uh, economists' understanding of the gold standard and, and their criticisms of it uh, over the years. After Bretton Woods breaks down, or simultaneous with the breakdown of Bretton Woods, uh, inflation picks up in the US. So chapter 12 is the great inflation and monetarism because monetarism comes to the forefront as a way of explaining uh, the inflation. The chapter begins with Milton Friedman writing a column in Newsweek applauding the appointment of Arthur Burns to head the central bank, uh, the Federal Reserve System. Friedman had studied with Burns, uh, so he was something 
Burns was something of a mentor to him. Uh, and Friedman, in his column, urges Burns to control money growth in order to avoid inflation. But as Fed chairman, Burns very quickly begins to blame inflation on everything other than monetary policy, uh, to cost-push factors. He talks about how the economy is not working the way it's supposed to because inflation's going up at the same time that unemployment's going up. Uh, so just three weeks, sorry, three months after he writes this Newsweek column, Friedman, although he's a friend of Burns, writes him a very stern letter uh, criticizing his arguments, criticizing his policy proposals, and by all accounts, the two were never very good friends after that. Uh, segue to a description of the great inflation and the monetarist uh, explanation of it. Um, chapter 13 tries to cover the growth of government, public goods, and public choice as public goods and public choice being alternative explanations for why government has grown. Right? Public goods theory tells us there's a demand for government and, uh, uh, by the public who get the benefits of government. Uh, public choice theory tells us there's a demand from people who are not the general public who get the benefit. Uh, but the chapter begins with the famous dinner party at which Ronald Coase is defending his article about the FCC to a group of Chicago economists. Even though the article's already been published in the Journal of Law and Economics, uh, Friedman and Stigler and others are not buying what later became known as the Coase theorem. Uh, and this dinner, Coase knew this, and this dinner was to give him a chance to defend his view uh, against everybody else. The way Stigler later recalls the event is that, uh, quote, we strongly objected to this heresy, the Coase theorem. Milton Friedman did most of the talking, as usual. He also did much of the thinking, as usual. Uh, in the course of two hours of argument, the vote went from 20 against and one for Coase, that being Coase himself, uh, to 21 for Coase. What an exhilarating event. I lamented afterward that we had not the clairvoyance to tape it. Uh, Coase's recollection was pretty similar. Uh, he knew that he was going to survive when he said, uh, if Milton Friedman can't knock you out after a couple of rounds, uh, you're home. Afterward, Aaron Director asked Coase to write up the arguments he had just made. The result was an article called The Theory uh, of the Problem of Social Cost. Went on to become probably the single most cited article uh, in economics. Segue to the public goods problem uh, and its use as a rationale for the growth of government uh, and the critique offered by the Public Choice School. Chapter 14 uh, is Free Trade Protectionism and Trade Deficits, where I borrow shamelessly from Doug Irwin's work, uh, begins with Milton Friedman testifying before the U.S. Trade Deficit Review Commission in 1999, and he's wearing an Adam Smith necktie. And one of the commissioners says, oh, I see you're wearing an Adam Smith necktie. They have a little exchange. He says, uh, so how do you think Adam Smith would have felt about the WTO, <laughs> the World Trade Organization? And Friedman replies, well, in my opinion, the best policy we can follow is to unilaterally remove our restrictions on trade. And this unilaterally part is something that has always been controversial and certainly hard for politicians to grasp. So segue to the case that Adam Smith made for that proposition um, and the case made for it and against it by later economists, the case against it most importantly being the infant industry argument. And finally, chapter 15 brings us up to the present under the title from pleasant deficit spending to unpleasant sovereign debt crisis. So it talks about uh, Keynesian fiscal theory, or so-called Keynesian fiscal theory. We were just talking before the event about to what extent it was Keynesian. Um, but the anecdote I begin with is one I was actually present at, at the Cato Monetary Conference two years ago. Uh, George Tablis from the Bank of Greece, note Greece, uh, gets up to speak and he says, uh, to this American audience, well, it's a pleasure to be in the United States again, which more than ever feels like being at home. <laughs> well, you responded a lot more quickly than the audience at the time. You can go back and watch the videotape, and there's kind of some nervous titters. <laughs> and and Tavilus makes it clear what he means, that the U.S. fiscal deficits remind him of Greece. So the chapter goes on to discuss fiscal Keynesianism, the idea that deficit spending unless you're at full employment, is a free lunch, or better than a free lunch. Uh, the multiplier is more than one. 
Uh, Buchanan and Wagner's critique of that, um, the argument that deficits do be, uh, burden future generations, the idea of Ricardian equivalence, uh, and the idea of unpleasant monetarist arithmetic, which helps to explain, I think, uh, the fix that Greece and other Eurozone countries are in. So thank you for your patience as I tried to cover all that. <laughs> There's more in the book, believe me. <laughs> more details and footnotes, but thanks very much. All right, um, so first to, to comment on the book will be Doug Irwin. Uh, professor Irwin is the Robert Maxwell Professor of Arts and Sciences in the Department of Economics at Dartmouth College. He is the author of uh, Trade Policy Disasters, Lessons from the 1930s, which is just out this year from MIT Press, Peddling Protectionism, Smoot-Hawley and the Great Depression uh, by Princeton University Press, which was just out last year. And then uh, he has several other books, but one of my favorites is an older book of his called Against the Tide, An Intellectual History of Free Trade, in which he goes through and examines all the criticisms of free trade over the years or the history of this doctrine and, and shows how in that clash of ideas the essential argument for free trade still holds. So please welcome Doug Irwin. Well, I first learned uh, that Larry was working on this book when uh, Tyler Cowen on Marginal Revolution said there are a bunch of uh, working papers, chapters posted on the Mercatus website. They look interesting, go uh, click on the link. So I did, of course, downloaded the papers, printed them out, read them, and of course, they were just great fun. Um, as Larry's uh, pointed out in his remarks, they always start out with an interesting vignette, one of these stories that most economists know but really should be widely shared, widely known. Uh, Ludwig Erhardt, getting rid of price controls. Um, uh, the famous Coast Dinner at the University of Chicago. These are just great vignettes that are a lot of fun, but also very powerful and have a lot to, to tell us. So in reading this, um, I actually got a student group together. We uh, read the chapters. We had Larry up to talk about them. Um, but I just recognized immediately that this is a, a new, interesting way of presenting the history of economic ideas. What could be more exciting than a clash, a debate, um, of over really big issues um, that major personalities contending over uh, you know, very fundamental issues in economics. This is what excites students. This is what I think excites a lot of economists, uh, too. Uh, it's, it, it just shows us that, first of all, we're not just rehashing old debates. These debates are still going on today. But there are very smart people in the past going over them. We can learn from them and say, you know, what do, can we take away from some of these debates? Uh, they're relevant today, uh, and I think Larry really brings that out time and time again. Uh, in addition to the good stories, these are sort of fundamental things. Now, when you contrast this with the usual way of teaching the history of economic thought, it's very chronological. You do Smith, and then you do Ricardo Malthus, and then you do Mill, and then you do Marx, and then Marshall and Keynes. And, you know, students sort of wonder, well, what, you know, I took Act One. Uh, do I really need to go over Marshall again? Was that really interesting stuff? So I think the debate and the clash of ideas is a great way of, of hooking the students, um, getting people really interested. Um, the one theme that is sort of throughout every chapter and sort of is the animating part of what the debate is, is what is the role of government in the economy? That's sort of central. It could be issues international trade or health care or fiscal policy or managing markets themselves, but that's sort of what it sort of ties every chapter together. What is the purpose and role of government in public policy? And this, of course, is an eternal question. Uh, every generation has to answer that for itself. There's always going to be contending parties over it, so it's very interesting to see how this is worked out in the past. Um, Larry, I don't think he mentioned this in his remarks, but uh, when I read the chapters, hear, see the vignettes, I do see a movie version of this. Um, it reminded me of The Commanding Heights. Uh, that's a, the old PBS documentary and book, which I very much enjoyed. I often show students uh, at least the first hour or so of that, because it is the clash of ideas, and it really brings it alive for students. Uh, and uh, uh, so this is a, an updated version of The Commanding Heights, if you will. So let me congratulate Larry on uh, what I think is a great achievement. This is a, a big success in the sense that it interweaves uh, an interesting and sophisticated discussion of leading economic debates. Um, it talks about the interplay of ideas. Um, there's also a lot of economic history in, involved in this as well. I'll, one of my comments will be that not quite enough, I think. But I, I think it's just a, a very nice, refreshing uh, book that is very interesting for not just students of economics, but uh, many uh, the, a wider, wider audience as well. 
So if I'm just here to, to praise Larry, you know, that might be, he might appreciate that. But of course, I have to come up with a few criticisms. I'll have three, I'm not sure they're actually criticisms. I think they're more comments or different views, something he should consider for the second edition, uh, than one major big comment. So the first sort of minor comment is um, the first chapter. So it starts right out uh, with the end of laissez-faire or the turn from laissez-faire at the turn of the century. Now, in some sense, uh, the, the book is a 20th century history that occasionally looks back. Um, I just offer this out for, uh, to, to Larry as a different place to start. It seems to me that Smith is the place to start. Smith was engaged in the first great debate, if you will, about mercantilism and trade policy. Uh, so much of the book hinges on uh, what we think of Smith, Smith's ideas about markets, order, um, uh, and things of that sort, that it's so central, I think, that it, it maybe should be put up front. Um, the turn from laissez-faire. Well, was laissez-faire ever a, a policy presumption? Um, you know, Smith had, wasn't quite there, but uh, people could interpret him in that way. So if you start with Smith as sort of a benchmark, you can go into some of the uh, debates uh, later from that, I would think. So, um, you know, where Smith is now, he's sort of halfway in the book, halfway through a chapter on the Mount Pelerin Society. And I think that's just demoting him too much. He, he deserves a little bit more front and center something to consider. The second thing I'd suggest is maybe even have a little bit more economic history, because the economists who were debating weren't just sort of debating ethereal ideas uh, out uh, in the, uh, you know, in, in one's heads, they're debating live issues, controversies about actual policies that were going on at the time. Um, and so, for example, when I read the chapter on India, which I think is a really great chapter and just talks about the intellectual climate in India and how it's changed, What's almost missing from that chapter uh, is what happened in 1991 when the big policy change took place. Well, why did that policy take, change take place? What was the role of intellectuals? Was it just a, uh, an accident because they had a crisis so they had to change course? Um, what was the uh, view of intellectuals after they made that change? Um, that's a huge policy change for a country of over a billion people. It has major ramifications for the world economy, um, and yet I think the chapter sort of petered out and really didn't talk about why that change took place and what was the role of ideas. Um, another chapter that could, uh, well, one, there's no chapter on China. Once again, a big policy change. I'm not sure, maybe there's a clash of ideas there, but once again, why did this big policy change take place? Were economists and was there a debate? Or is it just sort of an accident of history? You get a new leader, he changes course, and that's that. Um, another place where I think there could be a little bit more history or maybe bring history up to date is the chapter on the international monetary system and Bretton Woods. There's a huge debate among economists in the 50s and 60s about the merits of flexible versus floating exchange rates. Pardon me, fixed versus floating exchange rates. Um, and once again, Milton Friedman was a major uh, contender in that debate, uh, and he got a lot of resistance, not only from official officials in Washington around the world, but also a lot of economists. So, that debate on fixed versus floating exchange rates, it's a perennial debate. We're still having it, many developing countries are having it today. Um, it would be uh, fun to see a little bit of that in this book as well. And finally, the third sort of minor comment is that there's no concluding chapter. Uh, the book just ends, and I think it would have been nice to have some sort of summation about, well, what do we learn from these debates? What can we take away from these debates? Um, uh, what does it mean for the future? Uh, uh, once again, it just sort of ends abruptly and uh, some sort of transition uh, I think would have been useful. And I would note that's actually true for some of the chapters too. Uh, they just end without sort of a summation saying, well, what do we take away from this debate? Um, what can we learn? What can we conclude from it? And maybe this leads me to my last uh, sort of larger point, uh, which is once again more of a comment and something I think that I, I wish Larry had explored and I think um, deserves to be explored. And that's what is the role of economic ideas in shaping the political debate and the economic policy debate and in affecting policy outcomes. In other words, we have a great rendition of all these debates. Are these debates just a sideshow? A bunch of intellectuals debating amongst themselves and who gets the one-upmanship and whatever, who wins the debate, with no impact on economic policy? Or are these debates central to economic policy? Are economists really in the driver's seat in terms of uh, what is going to be the economic policy in the future? Um, so, you know, some people view, you know, economic interests are determining policy. Others say it really is the ideas of, of economists. Um, and Larry, you know, he talks about this a little bit in the introductory chapter. But I think um, given the, the amount of space he's devoting to the economic debates themselves, maybe a conclusion about what is the role of economic ideas in, in the policy outcome, that would be useful. And here, you know, there's some great economists who have speculated this in the past. Of course, John Maynard Keynes famously said, we're all the slaves of some defunct economist. 
um, and that, uh, you know, really it's ideas in the long run that rule the world, not vested interests. Um, George Stigler took exactly the opposite view. He said economists exert a minor and scarcely detectable influence on the societies in which they live. And it's really, it's, it's deep-seated uh, economic interests that are running the show. And the, all this debate about ideas, that's just sort of froth. Interestingly, Hayek almost agrees more with Keynes here. Hayek had uh, said that uh, uh, ideas are very important. So Hayek wrote, in every country that has moved towards socialism, the phase of the development in which socialism becomes a determining influence on politics has been preceded for many years by a period during which socialist ideals governing the thinking of, of the more active intellectuals. Experience suggests that once this phase has been reached, it is merely a question of time until the views now held by the intellectuals become the governing force in politics, implying that once econ uh, intellectuals make up their mind, it's just a matter of time before those become trans uh, affect economic policy. And then I'd say in between these views is uh, Milton and Rose Friedman. Um, they said the extraordinary force of experience was the major reason for the change in economic policies. Ideas played a significant part less by persuading the public than by keeping options open, providing alternative policies to adopt when changes were there to be made. Changes in economic and uh, social and economic policy, they wrote, uh, is preceded by a shift in the climate of intellectual opinion, itself generated at least in part by contemporary social, political, and economic circumstances. So they say ideas are important, but uh, not because they're the determining factor, but because they're the things that uh, politicians will turn to when there's a crisis, when there's a need for change, when there's some sort of change in the structure. Uh, so this is a great debate in and of itself. What is the role of ideas in affecting policy? Um, that debate should be in this book as well. But at any rate, let me just congratulate Larry on really a tremendous book. Uh, I found it fascinating reading. Uh, I'm going to be using it next year, so you're guaranteed at least some sales. Um, but I do look forward to a second edition. Thank you very much. And now we'll hear from uh, Professor Perry Merling from uh, uh, Barnard College, uh, Columbia University. And uh, Perry is the author of the definitive biography on Fisher Black, maybe the only biography <laughs> uh, on Fisher Black, but also the money interest and the public interest. Uh, um, Perry is also intimately involved with the uh, probably one of the biggest uh, movements at the moment that transforming the future of economics at INET, the Institute for New Economic Thinking. And uh, I'll turn it over to, to Perry. You, you forgot to mention my most recent book, The New Lombard Street. Oh, that's right. Yeah, How yeah. the Fed Became the Dealer of Last Resort in, in, a, in a bookstore near you. Yes, um, he, he wrote that book, too. Yep. <laughs> um, when Paul Krugman painted John Maynard Keynes as a pioneering critic of dominant free market economics, he exaggerated wildly, both about the rigidity of orthodoxy and about the pioneering character of Keynes' critique. So says Larry White in his book, The Clash of Economic Ideas. And speaking as a sometime historian of thought, I'm inclined to agree. Nevertheless, um, somewhat puzzlingly, although now I understand a little bit more about the choices he made and where they came from, um, White goes on to organize his book as an account of the Manichaean struggle between advocates of capitalism versus socialism, free markets versus government planning, spontaneous order versus deliberate design, and the Mont Pelerin Society versus the Fabian Society. For him, it's a struggle epitomized by the clash between Hayek and Keynes, and readers should know from, from up front that White is always rooting for Hayek. Um, and for the ancestry that he constructs for Hayek, back to Karl Menger and, and Adam Smith. This is a book with a definite point of view, um, which is why it works, actually. This isn't, this isn't a criticism, it's, it's an explanation. Indeed, the best that can be said on the other side for Keynes is that he, along with his Fabian fellow travelers, was an unwitting dupe of the real enemy of freedom, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. The worst that can be hinted of Keynes is that he may himself have been one of those enemies of freedom whose skill in wielding political power allow them to get ahead in a system where political power controls everything. For White, following Hayek, the road to serfdom is a veritable sheet of ice, a slippery slope that can easily sweep the unwitting traveler off his feet and land him in servitude. Luckily, England pulled back from the edge before it was too late, but other countries were not so fortunate India's experience with central planning is presented as an object lesson 
to all others who might be so tempted. Germany's miraculous post-war recovery is the counterexample on the other side. The book is organized, as its subtitle announces, and as you've just heard from, from Larry's uh, introduction, as an account of the great policy debates and experiments of the last hundred years. They are listed in the first sentence of the introduction, and I, I'll just remind you of these. Um, and I'm quoting now. The adoption of central banking in the United States and elsewhere, command economies during the First World War, communist central planning in the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, and China. I missed the China part. Um, fascism in Mussolini's Italy, national socialism in Hitler's Germany, the New Deal in Roosevelt's United States, the Bretton Woods, international monetary system, and the adoption of Keynesian macroeconomic policies after the Second World War, major nationalizations in post-war Great Britain, the reemergence of free market principles in post-war Germany, Soviet-style five-year plans in India, the final abandonment of gold in favor of a system of fluctuating exchange rates among unanchored government fiat monies, regulation and deregulation and re-regulation around the globe, the collapse and repudiation of communism in Russia and Eastern Europe, market-led growth policies in East Asian tigers and then in China and India, neoliberal policies promoting the globalization of economic activities. Phew. Let it be stipulated that the book covers a lot of territory. And also that it's a rip-roaring read, actually. Um, I learned, for example, just to pick one, one that uh, caught my attention, um, that according to Keynes biography, biographer Harrod, Keynes' recipe for the young economist was to know his marshal thoroughly and read his times every day carefully. Um, that caught, caught me because I always tell my students uh, the Financial Times. Okay, you need to read your Financial Times every day, every day carefully. Um, so I didn't know I had that in common with, with Keynes. So I had fun reading this book. But now let me turn to some moments of, of criticism. Um, my main concern, and, and I, I hear this a little bit from Doug too, although I'm going to be sharper. Um, my main concern is the way that essentially every one of the debates and exper experiments is read through the very same lens. I think this probably works pretty well pedagogically if you're running a course. Um, but as history of thought, it leads a little bit to be desired. All the debates are viewed essentially as variations on the long ago socialist calculation debate between Oscar Lange and Ludwig von Mises. Can a planned economy even work, much less outperform a free market economy? That's the question. According to White, Mises was right on that question, uh, and Lange was wrong. But unfortunately, the matter did not end there, and it's been playing out on the world stage ever since. Now, you might think I'd be more sympathetic to this frame, since my own assessment of the Valrasian turn in economics is probably even more negative than White's. He singles out Lange as the origin of the tendency. In my own research, I put the spotlight instead on Jacob Marshak. Uh, but leave that aside. The important point is that the Valrasian turn imagined that the economy could be envisioned as a set of simultaneous equations. You, you all know that, with the market-clearing set of relative prices as the solution. This vision captivated post-war economics, monetarists and Keynesians alike, Friedman and Tobin, and today new classical and new Keynesian alike uh, as well. It's, it's the dominant uh, view. White doesn't like it, for Hayekian reasons, essentially, having to do with information and, uh, and time. As for me, I don't like it either, uh, but for Frank Hahn reasons, um, which is to say it has no place in it for money. But either way, the important historical fact is that this way of thinking about economics rose to become dominant, pushing White's favored Austrian tradition into the background, and also my own favored money view tradition, as I, as I like to call it, um, into the background. So we're, we're, we're both, uh, I don't know, heretics of some, of some <laughs> kind. Um, uh, maybe from, from different angles, although I'm gonna talk about some, some uh, similarities. When I agreed to discuss this book, uh, when they, I guess I got an email about it, um, I imagined that we might have our own clash of ideas on the subject of money, where Larry is an advocate of free banking, including competitive note issue. I imagined I would ask him whether he views the shadow banking system as an example of competitive note issue. I'll ask him that. Uh, unfortunately, he doesn't say very much about money in the book. Um, there are only two money chapters to my way of understanding which is the one on Bretton Woods that he mentioned and the one on post-war inflation about Keynes and then about Friedman. Nevertheless, it's pretty clear that he views central banking through the same lens as everything else. It's just another example of the government stepping in to do what free markets do better. In this case, the bankers' clearinghouses that predated modern central banks. 
I uh, beg to differ. I align myself with Badgett, who famously stated that money will not manage itself and Lombard Street has a great deal of money to manage. More generally, I align myself with the larger tradition of British central banking thought, of which Badgett was uh, a part, including Ralph Hawtrey, big fan of Ralph Hawtrey, Charles Goodhart, and I would even say John Maynard Keynes in that tradition. Like all central bankers, Keynes was trying to find ways to keep an inherently unstable system from blowing apart, not just domestically, but also internationally. The international role of the pound was in decline throughout Keynes's life, but very much present as the intellectual context for his thinking and writing. This is a very different frame for, for understanding Keynes than the one offered by White, but also, I hasten to add, very different than the one offered by Krugman that I started, started with, um, which is also a, a caricature, perhaps the worst. Krugman serves White, so let's talk about Krugman. Krugman serves White in this book as a kind of stalking horse, probably in hope that Krugman will attack the book on his blog, and so, <laughs> and so sell more copies. I, I guess I have that right. Yeah. Um, uh, for my purposes, Krugman is interesting for a different reason, um, as a concrete example of how different American Keynesianism, that is Krugmanian Keynesianism, was from the, from the economics of Keynes. The Keynesian economics that White explains in Chapter 5 is really the economics of Krugman more than it is the economics of Keynes. He traces it correctly back to Samuelson and even farther to Alvin Hansen, but he sees Hansen as nothing more than a popularizer of Keynes. That's a standard view, by the way, but as someone who's written a biography of Hansen, I have to take issue with this account. And since I have the stage, I'm going to correct that story. Uh, maybe I make things worse for Hansen by saying so, but I must insist that Hansen be understood fundamentally as an American institutionalist, very much akin to those who made Roosevelt's New Deal. For White, that makes things worse because he sees the American institutionalists, Ely, Commons, and, and, and others, um, as successors to the German historical school, the Marx-influenced socialists of the chair, who supported Hitler and fascism. Indeed, for White as for Hayek, the important thing about Hitler's national socialism is that it was socialism. Behind Hitler and Mussolini too is Lenin. So for him, the American institutionalists are, like the British Fabian Society, tainted by the intellectual company they keep. Here again, I must beg to differ. The American institutionalists were just as much rejecting Marx and the classical economics tradition as they were rejecting Marshall and the neoclassical economics tradition. For better or worse, they saw these theories as products of class-ridden, tired old Europe, not applicable to the brave new world, uh, I shouldn't say brave new world, to the new world, to, to, the, to, to America. For, the, for them, for these American institutionalists, optimist American, optimistic uh, American institutionalists, government was not the agent of the oppressive king or the ruling class, but rather the collectivity of town fathers gathering together to solve common problems. Europeans, Keynes and Hayek equally, typically found it difficult to understand what these Americans were up to, and they tended to treat them as intellectual inferiors, look down on them. Um, but they were up to something, and it wasn't fascism or socialism, it was democratic self-government. So I've already indicated that I trace one side of my own ancestry to the tradition of British central banking. Let's call that my father's side. Um, I trace the other side um, to American institutionalism. That's call that my mother's side. Um, so here's two sides in which we might have a further clash of ideas. My concern, I submit to you, is that like our missed clash about money, um, this one is also more obscured than illuminated by viewing it through the narrow lens of the socialist calculation debate, much less the emotionally charged lens of enemies versus defenders of freedom. I think everyone up here is a defender of freedom. I think that's what economics is mostly about. Um, we're, we're just looking for the best way to go about it. Thank you. Okay, uh, Larry. Well, uh, both uh, authors remarked on the fact that the book is not chronological in the usual sense of going economic thinker by economic thinker, starting as early as you want to start and moving toward the present. Um, I probably should have mentioned uh, in my remarks that there was another influence on that, which was my graduate instructor in the uh, history of economic thought was Thomas Sowell. And Sowell organized things in what I regarded as the 
sort of rigorous way, which was topic by topic. So we had a week on rent theory where we read the five classic pieces on rent theory, and then a week on returns to scale, and a week on money and prices, and so on. Uh, and I always thought that was better than sort of the lazy man's way of teaching it. <coughs> here's what Smith said, here's what Ricardo said, here's what Marx said. Um, Doug says there's not quite enough economic history. Well, for a history of economic thought book, there's a lot of economic history. Um, I, I'm sure there could always be more. The book could always be longer. I'm particularly uh, mindful that I didn't have a chapter on antitrust and the debate over antitrust, which was important. Uh, I didn't have a chapter on the debate over the Federal Reserve Act, but I've written about that elsewhere. Uh, and I certainly didn't have anything about debate over banking regulation, which of course is very much on the front burner today. Um, so should there be a second edition, those would be <coughs> strong candidates. Um, Perry, uh, Perry suggested that I was sort of viewing all the other debates through the lenses of the socialist calculation debate. And I'll have to go back and see whether that's true, because I certainly didn't mean to do that. <laughs> certainly not the macro chapters. Uh, and I don't think even the micro chapters, I mean, I think the questions about sort of piecemeal intervention are different about, than the questions about can you uh, arrange the entire economy uh, from one central committee. Uh, I, of course, like what he had to say about the, the problems with Valrasian theory and the exclusion of money from that way of thinking about uh, the economy. Um, when he mentioned uh, Walter Badgett, I really perked up because I'm a Badgett man myself, and my favorite parts of Lombard Street are where Badgett says, well, the ideal system is the system that would have grown up if there hadn't been any government interference. You just have to look to Scotland to see what that would look like. There's competition among many banks of more or less equal size, keeping their own reserves, not relying on the government. Um, but we in England have evolved this one reserve system where the Bank of England holds all the reserves because we've placed crippling legal restrictions on all the other banks. And of course, there was a history of legal restrictions on every bank other than the Bank of England to maintain the Bank of England's monopoly uh, powers. So uh, I, I didn't really put Badgett into the book because he was, I didn't have a chapter on banking regulation, but he would certainly play uh, an important role. Uh, in such a chapter. Um, and finally, on, on the institutionalists, I wasn't trying to insinuate that the institutionalists were Marxists in any sense. They're, I tried to distinguish in the book among different kinds of socialism. And in fact, in the first chapter, I say there are as many kinds of socialism as there are kinds of capitalism. Right? So there's Marxist, Marxian socialism, but there's also nationalistic socialism, and there's Bismarckian socialism. And that was the socialism of the German historical school. Um, so sort of more for the interests of um, the median voter than for the uh, proletariat. Um, but maybe I need to uh, make those distinctions clear and issue more disclaimers about what I'm not trying to do in the book. But thank you both very much for your very helpful comments. <laughs>